electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. The Powell pivot with the Fed looking more hawkish, the Dow jumping and the Nasdaq trailing again. Is volatility here to stay into year end? We'll look at the shakeout and how best to position. Plus, putting a price on carbon. Former BP CEO Bob Dudley says it's necessary, but how will energy companies cope with that? And where does he see oil prices going from here? We'll ask him live in just a few minutes. And you may know him as Deadpool or the Green Lantern or as the face of Aviation Gin. But actor Ryan Reynolds is also working to change advertising. And he joins us live today with the disconnect he sees in the industry and how his new venture hopes to disrupt the space. I know Dom is looking forward to it. I am. Mr. Chu has our market. I I am a Ryan Reynolds fan. He does bring me a laugh now and then here. So, yes, the markets right now, Kelly, are in the green, much more so than we've seen as of late. You can see the Dow Industrials up 700 points. We're up roughly 62 points for the S&P 500. That represents session highs right now. So, again, 60, we'll call it maybe 63 points, and up two was the lows of the session. So, predominantly higher for the S&P 500, the Dow Industrials. The Nasdaq Composite, the real laggard there. We'll talk a little bit more about what's driving that action. One other place to keep an eye on, though, is cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin specifically. The reason why is it's a very very modest move, but still 48,955. The reason why it's important, because depending on which measure you look at for Bitcoin, it's traded in a number of different exchanges. The level you want to watch is just around 48,800. That represents a big moving average that we might be trying to bounce off of right around here. So keep it on Bitcoin prices, as well as those smaller to- smaller tokens and coins as well. Is it a risk asset? Is it a haven asset? We'll find out if we do see more of a risk trade happening in the markets overall. And speaking of, what we are seeing is an economically sensitive driven market right now. The reason why I pointed out is because the top performing stocks within the S&P 500 include travel and leisure names like Norwegian Cruise Lines up 12 and a half percent, United Airlines up 11 and a quarter percent and 10 percent gains for Las Vegas Sands. Hospitality and leisure reopening trade, if you will. Meanwhile, advanced micro devices and NVIDIA, two momentum juggernauts over the course of the past year on the semiconductor side are actually seeing some weakness down 5 percent, down 4 percent for NVIDIA. So Is there perhaps, Kelly, this kind of rotation? We don't want to use that word too lightly, but still, are people moving away from some of those safety names that have been viewed in big tech and moving more towards those reopening trades as, more importantly, traders, Kelly, look at and beyond the threat of Omicron? Back over to you. Exactly. May also be driving stocks to session highs. Dom, thank you so much. And we have this rally today with investors sort of nervous about that Powell pivot at the same time. So here with some advice into year end are Mark Smith. He's the senior vice president and portfolio manager at Wells Fargo Advisors. And Michael Cugino, who is president and portfolio manager of the permanent portfolio family of funds. Welcome to both of you. Mark, some thoughts on this rally today. Yeah, we should all be pretty uh, excited with uh, markets up over 700, but there's a lot to be excited about. Uh, going into the holiday season, historically great for the markets. Um, malls are packed, and uh, we were able to shore up those supply chains by having 24-hour round-the-clock uh, service all these ports. And so 
the U.S. consumer is strong because uh, they bailed us out before. They've got the cash to do it. In fact, we uh, U.S. Um, uh, citizens have more in their bank account than they've ever had in American history. And this is the first holiday season in two years that they're able to go out, see their loved ones and um, and feel com- comfortable about that. And I think a lot of them are going to buy and make up for uh, for past uh year. So Michael, uh, very confident about the markets. And I think that you're seeing that today. Yeah. And you've been saying that, Mark, for some time that you're extremely bullish. Michael, let me turn to you. Where does this leave the Fed? We have many indications, press reports and otherwise, that they're seeing the world that Mark is describing and going, OK, maybe it's time to hasten the taper. The 10 year, I mean, 1.39 percent. Are you in the camp, obviously, that thinks it's going higher? But also, is that why we're seeing Nasdaq underperformance today on a day that otherwise we have a lot of pretty bullish signs? Well, there's a lot to unpack there, Kelly, but uh, no, yes. I think the answer is yes. Uh, uh, Powell's comments last week were pretty earth-shattering, if you will, going, you know, changing that definition that, you know, using the word transitory. Uh, No surprise to us, we never believed it was transitory. We think some of it is, but not all of it is. And real inflation is probably going to settle 3 or 4% when, when everything settles down. So if you believe that that's the case, then what you're seeing is this sort of macro move. That I think one reason why we saw a lot of volatility last week and why we are seeing what Dom noted earlier, uh, a move to cyclicals, growth-oriented trades, et cetera, um, at the expense of the high multiple, previously high-flying types of stocks. Now, whether this is sustainable or not, who knows? We've seen these rotations you know, on and off for the last couple of years. But it would be indicative of potentially a higher-rate environment and more of a, an economic growth story. Yeah. Is this the end of the Omicron scare, Mark? Let's show again what's happening here this afternoon. Since 12 p.m., the Dow is levitating at the same time that the 10 years. I mentioned a moment ago, it was at 139 about 90 minutes ago. We're up at 142. Yeah, I think that folks are, are, are tired of the variants, and they're, they're showing that by uh, not really caring about w- w- what's being reported on Omicron. And that's a lot, a lot of reasons for that, because the uh, vaccines are in a lot of folks' hands. And if you've got a lot of different uh, medicines out there to fix um, possible issues that come out with a variant. And so I think that, yeah, you're, you're definitely seeing that folks are moving on from this. Uh, but w- what remains to be seen is how quickly Powell's going to react uh, to uh, to inflation. And I think that's the big unknown. Um, if he is going to be aggressive in, in, in going ahead and raising rates, I think we have a lot less to be worried about, but the markets uh, may not be ready for it. And so that's where the, yeah. we're getting a lot of volatility, this this back and forth in the markets over the last few months. So for both of you, give us your best advice into year end. Mark, I'll start with you. Yeah, because you can't really control what's going on in Washington, you've got to go with companies who can weather the storm. And so those are folks that have pricing power and companies that have pricing power. So the uh, the XLF is great with the financials. Uh, those th- these banks have shown time and time again they can make money in almost any environment, especially with tech coming after them so hard. They've been able to outperform. I think you have to own the financials. You're also seeing with an interest, infrastructure deal of a trillion dollars, industrials and materials, great place to be to capitalize on that free-flowing money. So there are some, I think, home runs over the next year uh, year or two because of what is certain. Where I wouldn't be putting money is and is anything that has a lot of uncertainty. And so let's stick with what we know rather than uh, what we can't control. Michael? Uh, on the bond side, short duration, high quality balance sheets. I would put some gold and silver and precious metals in the portfolio. And on the equity side, those stocks levered to growth, those that have pricing power, those that can control you know, input costs, 
And, uh, you know, the, the industry sectors there would be the energies, the materials, the commodities, the, the transports, the manufacturings, the financial services. Yeah, and we're showing some names like Chevron Occidental, Aventive, uh, formerly Encounter, which you also do like. Mark, you also yep. have a sort of a side mention of China here at a time when there's more uh, pressure on the country than ever over the Olympics, the comments from Ray Dalio and all the rest of it. Why do you think from an investment point of view, people should actually be taking a look right now? Well, clients are calling every day about what's going on in China. In fact, 60 Minutes talked about it last night, about the huge um, uh, uh, earth-shattering things that the chairman is doing over there. And so there is opportunity in all that uncertainty. You're seeing all the major Chinese stocks down 50, 60, 70 percent year to date. And these are companies that have customer bases in the 20 and 30 million people range. So, um, you know, that is, a, uh, I think, really good from a, a geopolitical risk perspective because there's so much demand, but really bad because you can't control what the chairman is going to do on any, any single point. So that's inherently the opportunity that many of my clients are seeing and are dollar cost averaging in those names, knowing that long term, they think it's going to pay out. All right, Michael, I don't know if you want to echo that, but I also want to mention that you think this sell-off could be a buying opportunity. <laughs> it's already, maybe it's already passed. It's a pretty quick rotation we've seen if you go back to Thanksgiving with Omicron, and now the market's looking like they're trying to re recover all of that lost ground. Yeah, my point was if you continue to see the rotation and sell-offs of some of the higher, higher growth names, that at some point they will become more attractive, less, less rich. And there are some great companies in there, and uh, and so they might be buying opportunities. But as you mentioned, the market's whipsawing so quickly, uh, you don't have much opportunity to even consider that stuff uh, when you've got moves like today. So longer term, it's something to keep watching. Would you be in there whenever we show the you know the names like Zoom down 50-plus percent from its 52-week high? You also get a cloud flare in that group, might have more attractive long-term characteristics. Is there anything in that space that you say – you know, you, you'd move against uh, the market, basically, and look at this being a buying opportunity. I think, generally speaking, every company's individual, but I think, generally speaking, we would be waiting to see more reasonable entry points. There's a lot of great long-term businesses there that have just been, you know, selling at way too high prices. And so, to the extent they come down, they become more attractive on a long-term basis. So, I would sort of wait around, do your research, and, and as you see some opportunities, take advantage of them. The other thing to note, though, is if the interest rate rises real and it's going to happen, then those are the types of stocks that generally do get hit. And it is a more longer term issue for them to come back. And there's an argument that interest rates should go up. Uh, interest rate volatility should go up. Inflation is a real risk. And let's face it, you know, 1.4 10-year is not sustainable when you're talking about inflation that you know, by most recent statistics, was annualized at around 6%. Right. So something's got to give. And, and as a result, I think you want to hedge your bets in terms of strategy being in, in a bunch of different places from an asset diversification standpoint to sort of, you know, have multiple avenues to profit, but also protect some downside because you, you have some things that aren't sustainable going on here. Absolutely. Something's got to give. We all feel that way. You know, it's just a question of which way it goes. Guys, yeah. thank you both today. Great to talk to you, Michael Cugino and Mark Thanks. Smith. Thanks. Now to energy, where oil prices are jumping today, while nat gas prices continue their recent slide. The biggest players in energy are all gathering in Houston for the World Petroleum Congress. Brian Sullivan is there for us, and he's joined now by the former CEO of BP, Bob Dudley, and an exchange exclusive. Brian? Hey, Kelly, thanks very much. First time that this event, the World Petroleum Congress, has been in the United States since 1987. Hard to believe 
More than 30 years ago, Bob Dudley, former CEO of BP, now CEO of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative. Thank you very much for joining us. Right. Um, this is an industry with sort of an existential crisis, as I said earlier on CNBC Today, meaning will this industry, not this conference, will the industry be around in 30 years? Will oil be around by 2050? Brian, there's, there's no question of that. We need to produce cleaner oil and cleaner natural gas, but the industry will be around. It's a massive industry, invest in big, big capital projects, developing many, many technologies, many of which will be incredibly important, if not essential, for the climate change, uh, uh, cleaner energy transition we're going to go through. Think about it, Brian. There'll, by 2050, there'll be 2 billion more people on the planet, and of course, with that, it's going to need, we're going to need all forms of energy, and we will need oil. Plastics come from energy. 20% of an electric vehicle is plastics. Uh, you think about our cell phones and, and the plastics and those sorts of things, clothes, even medical syringes. Of course, oil will be around. And that's, that's the thing about this industry, which I don't think a lot of people, by the way, even very informed CNBC viewers, understand. It's not some love of the hydrocarbon or fossil fuel. It's the reality of, say, the petrochemical business. Or to your point, carbon fiber. Morgan Brennan was talking about the F-35 joint strike fighter earlier on CNBC. Mm. Carbon fiber is made of petroleum. Wind turbines have petroleum. Mm. The industry does not get enough sort of understanding, does it, of everything, not just transportation fuel Mm. that is necessary. Mm. So how does the industry deal with that? Tell that story succinctly, smartly, but also make sure they're not contributing to warming the planet and, you know, destroying humanity. Right. Well, (laughs) demand will, there's no doubt, demand will go down. And focusing the use of oil and gas will will occur, no doubt. Renewables will expand, but they're not going to be enough to actually drive the economy. In fact, I don't think you could even hit the goals of the Paris Accords without natural gas and new technologies like CCUS, carbon sequestration and use, those are going to have to be part of this and the oil and gas industry and the companies, and they will transition into being massive energy companies, uh, will, their products are going to be needed. The activists will say this is the industry talking its book, pretending to care, Mm -hmm. right, using all the right buzzwords, green, clean, climate, renewal, all this stuff, but that they're the problem and they shouldn't be involved. Well, That's just, the criticism. You read it all the time. So I, I work and chair the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, the 12 biggest, largest oil and gas and energy companies in the world who come together to work on the energy transition, not only setting targets and driving each other to do that, but also creating, starting out with a billion-dollar fund, investing in companies that are uh, methane, methane detection technologies all around the world. There will be nowhere to hide with, with natural gas leakages. I mean, that'll clean up the industry enormously. You're but confident it, that's going to happen? Absolutely, absolutely. The technology is moving very fast. We'll be able to look, uh, you, you know, I predict out 10 years, you'll be able to go to a website and see where all the natural gas leakages would be, whether it's agriculture, industry, or oil and gas. So that's going to change for sure. You're going to have sensors on cattle? <laughs> <laughs> well... It, that's a different topic. Not, not a diversification for the oil and gas companies. But, but can the oil and gas industry be part of the solution? Absolutely. It has to be. It has to be. And it knows it's part of the issue today. And it's got to produce cleaner energy. Natural gas, I keep coming back to. If you can contain it, make sure it doesn't leak. It's very efficient in burning. It has half the CO2 emissions of coal. We can't get to where we need to be in mm. terms of the energy transition without natural gas displacing coal. Yeah. 
as an example. But well, we're having a, a bit of an energy crisis in your, you know, UK where you lived, uh, where they're having to buy it on the spot market, and there's real risk of blackouts, and people won't be able to afford power. Very quickly, Dan Jurgen, who's here, by the way, very smart yep. guy, mm-hmm. um, fascinating article in the Atlantic, which I urge everybody to go read. He talked about coal, and coal was basically invented, I think, in 1709, mm-hmm. but it took almost 200 years before coal supplanted wood mm. as the mm. primary source of elect, you know, power and heat and sort of light, that the transition was far slower. Mm-hmm. We're in the middle of a transition. Do you think it will be slower than something? Well, it took 100 years for oil to basically displace the coal as the next wave, and then natural gas coming in, and nuclear was great hope, and it, it, it didn't happen, although there are real benefits to nuclear power, know, for where's, example. Where's talking about? So, but the... The population of the planet, which has gone straight up, actually almost matching the the production of oil and gas going up, GDP rates and population tracked up about 100 years ago, all around generally the same line. So we know we're going to have population. We know there are new energy sources that come in and displace it. Solar and wind are are making big inroads in this, and it will continue to do it and needs to do it. But it's just the size and scale of the energy complex of the world. I think is the most uh, misunderstood thing. The global, yeah, you know, Bob Dudley, thank you very much. Really, we got to go to a panel, by the way, so we got to scoot <laughs> out of here. But, you know, Kelly, I think that's part of the story a lot of people don't get is in the United States, we're a wealthy nation. We can sort of create our own destiny. In places like Nigeria, there are millions of homes that are heated by wood that are literally chopped down by members of the family who then use the wood to heat and to cook with, but they're deforesting, which is mm-hmm. anti-climate. But these are people that are impoverished. And so I think the theme of this conference really is the global aspect. We can do a lot in the United States, but we need to remember that there's 9 billion people in the world within a, you know, a couple of years that are going to need opportunities as well. So I think that's the, that's the theme so far. Absolutely. Today. Brian, great stuff all day so far. We really appreciate it. Brian Sullivan. And a quick programming note, Brian will speak with Baker Hughes, chairman and CEO tomorrow on Power Lunch, 2.45 p.m. Eastern as our coverage continues. You don't want to miss that. Still ahead on the exchange, biotech stocks have been tanking this year and are down just 9% since Thanksgiving, leading to big losses for some billion-dollar hedge funds. We'll tell you who's hurting the most and what it'll take to stop the bleeding. Plus, actor Ryan Reynolds and ad exec Mark Douglas on why TV is still the king of advertising. Their words, not mine. And we're going to talk classic cars with McKeel Haggerty of Haggerty Group, which just went public via SPAC. What's the future for old-school automobiles? We're back in a minute. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow. 
today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. Some dramatic intraday moves have bond yields climbing. You can see the chart behind me where liftoff happened just about 90 minutes ago, and it's taking the stocks, the Dow especially, to new intraday highs up 700-plus points. Let's check in with Rick Santelli out at the CME. What are you hearing, Rick? You know, today the big story early was what's wrong with the Treasury complex? What's wrong with Boone's? Nothing was moving much, and the equity markets around the globe were starting to get a bit of traction. But all of a sudden, we're playing catch up, and it's getting aggressive. You know, last week, if you look at 10 year note yields, Wednesday, Thursday, that 140 level was very crucial as a bottom. Now that we've moved through it to the upside, we're starting to bring in more selling, and that delayed selling could get a whole whole lot more aggressive. We see all maturities finding the sellers. We even see that new asset class of cryptos earlier today was exactly the opposite. It was sending over buyers. They've had a rough time the last several sessions. But at this point, I would consider 140 a good pivot for 10-year. And I'm not sure if this is driven by less aggressive tendencies to feel nervousness regarding the new variant, but no matter how you slice it, there is some serious pent-up demand here, and we have supply starting tomorrow with threes, tens, and thirties. This move could really get some sell legs. You could see a 155 yield awfully quick, Kelly. Back to you. I was going to ask, Rick, if you thought this was Omicron, Powell, the fact that they've cleared out a lot of the shorts now, although maybe they'll now come back in. Yeah, I I personally think that a lot of the moves that we've been seeing are more related to trying to get a GPS with insufficient scientific information on the variant. But right now, it certainly seems as though the new catchphrase is maybe more contagious, but maybe not as serious. And that really seems to be grabbing hold of traders, not so much the traders that are coming in now, but those that thought the other way earlier, either in the early session or last week that are getting out shorts, getting out of the equity markets. And, of course, some of those flight to safety trades reversing. Yeah, and, you know, this sort of goes without saying, but we've seen so much volatility in the tenure lately. We're up six basis points on the day, and that almost feels normal. (laughs) Never would have been that way in the past. Rick, thank you, and we'll check back in soon. We appreciate it. Just just buckle up. If we start to get much above 150 on this session, you're going to see a whole lot more action. Oh, for sure. Rick, thank you. Rick Santelli, we appreciate it. We'll check Uh, back in, as I mentioned, in just a couple of minutes. The Dow is up more than 15% this year, but biotech has been an underperformer in 2021. The S&P Biotech ETF, the XBI, it's down 22% this year, and it's trading right now near its 52-week low. It's also trailing its market cap-weighted peer, the IBB. It's only down 4% as some of the bigger names have removed the volatility in the biotech space. Still, all of these losses slamming the hedge funds that made big bets on the sector. Joining me now is Greg Zuckerman. He's a special writer at the Wall Street Journal and author of the new book, A Shot to Save the World. Greg, welcome. And in some ways, this is a Pfizer and Moderna related underperformance, isn't it? Yeah, sort of uh, ironic, Kelly, in that biotech companies, including those you mentioned, Moderna, Pfizer, others, stepped up. They've saved us, saved lives. And yet people are selling biotech shares. They're getting crushed. Hedge funds, I'm spending the, the week chasing rumors about people closing down. So there was some irony there. Yeah, there is. All right. It's a, not a laughing matter, though, for hedge funds who are facing huge losses. Tell us what kinds of losses and the impact that's uh, having across the markets. 
Sure. So these are big name hedge funds, um, Perceptive, Orbimed, some of the best and brightest are down 30, 40% in some of their funds. There's a, one funds, another firm had that's closing down. And as I said, there, the rumors about others, a part of it is just how expensive some of these stocks got. So as you would hope and expect, the stock market anticipates good things. And biotech shares have done nicely the last few years. You could argue that they anticipated the heroic efforts by some of these companies like Moderna and Novavax and BioNTech. And those stocks are still up a lot. There's expectation that there's going to be therapies coming out, improved vaccines that are going to really help their bottom line. But there's been too much uh, IPOs of kind of smaller companies flooding the biotech world with extra supply. Mm. And a lot of sort of generalist investors are heading for the exits. That's exactly, you know, we spoke with Jared Holtz not long ago, uh, one of the analysts for the space, and he said the same thing. There's a ton of supply, a lot of different companies. A lot of people think there's almost too much uh, fundraising happening in, when these companies are still private as well. But the hedge funds are pretty specialized. So, for instance, Cormorant, which you talk about, they focus on smaller biotech companies. What are they supposed to do? That's their mandate. So 2020, decent year. 2021 is terrible. Are they just hoping that 2022 turns a page? Partly, um, I think they can be faulted, not them specifically, but some of the hedge funds can be faulted for their shorting. Um, some, not all, but some have done things like shorting the S&P 500 as opposed to specific biotech shares. And that obviously has hurt them as the S&P has climbed higher. So they argue that, well, we're actually in a really uh, remarkable era for biotech. We're seeing it with the vaccines, with some of the therapeutics that are coming, and now's not the time to sell. The counter argument is, yeah, these companies may be really attractive long term, but these stocks are still relatively expensive on a historical basis. It hasn't been a great year for investment returns, but could you zoom out for a second and put this in context for us? Are these the best of times or the worst of times for biotech companies themselves? You know, a lot of capital raising, a lot of companies IPOing could be seen as a positive. Obviously, they're going to get a benefit, I think, from everything that's happened with the efforts to fight COVID. You know, maybe that takes off the political edge. Is it better than it appears if you just look at the investment returns? I think it is. So we need to acknowledge that these vaccines are modern science's greatest uh, historic achievement. And I do think that regulators and others um, maybe see them in a different light. We all kind of in the media, too, used to be very critical of big pharma, middle pharma, little pharma. And we need to acknowledge and have some gratitude to how they stepped up. It's not to say that uh, we can't be, still be critical. There are times that they need to be critical. But yeah, I think we're in an era of development, innovation, applying mRNA to all kinds of new approaches. New vaccines are coming, I think. There could be um, new targets like cancer and malaria and uh, MS. There are all kinds of uh, reasons to be optimistic. So maybe the shares are down, but there's a lot of uh, reason for confidence and, and hope about the future. Another example where sort of a positive fundamental story doesn't always translate to good returns. Greg, thanks as always for your reporting and thanks for joining us. Great to see you, Kelly. Greg Zuckerman with The Wall Street Journal. Still ahead, shares of Rivian are climbing today, but still down 40% from their recent high. We'll tell you what Wall Street is saying about the stock as at least 10 firms initiate coverage and you're not going to find a lot of sells. Stay with us. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. 
Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get a quick check on markets. Fresh session highs right here. The Dow's up 755 points. Ever since midday, we've seen a lift in the 10-year. We see a lift in equities, especially with the Dow leading the way. Still, the S&P is up 1.5%. The Nasdaq is now up more than 1% for its part as well. So here's what's powering the Dow. Walgreens Boots, American Express, Visa, all putting up numbers in the range of 4 to 4.5% right now. Reopening trade is lifting the S&P. You've got Norwegian, United Airlines, Las Vegas, Expedia, all the big winners there. Norwegian is up 12% right now. And shares of Rivian are on pace to snap a four-day losing streak after getting a slew of bullish initiations on Wall Street. Uh, the shares are up just shy of 7% right now. They haven't put together a week of gains since the IPO last month and closed below the opening price of 106 on Friday. We're at almost 112 today. Goldman, the most bearish of all the initiations today with a neutral rating, how dare they, and a $94 price target. They're suggesting about 10% downside. J.P. Morgan also rating in a neutral on valuation concerns. On the other hand, Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas giving it a 147 target call, uh, a buy, calling Rivian the only one that can challenge Tesla. We know he's bullish on Tesla as well. RBC, you can see up here, 165, second highest on the street. They'll be on power lunch next hour to make their case for the stock. B of A is the biggest bull on the street. They see a 60% rally from here, thanks to Rivian's key anchor customer, which is Amazon. Now to see, uh, now to Christina Partsinevelis, I should say, for a CNBC News update. Christina? Thank you, Kelly. Let's go through what's happening at this hour right now. The White House announcing moments ago the United States will hold a diplomatic boycott of the Winter Olympic Games in Beijing due to China's human rights record. No government officials will travel to the Games, but U.S. athletes are allowed to compete and will have the White House's full support. Meanwhile, a former high-ranking National Guard official is accusing the Pentagon of lying about its response to the January 6th attacks on Capitol Hill. Colonel Earl Matthews says a Pentagon watchdog report is filled with inaccuracies in an attempt to protect an Army official. He says the official delayed for hours the National Guard's deployment to protect the Capitol. Also at the Capitol, flags are flying at half-staff in honor of former Senate Majority Leader Bob Doyle, who died yesterday at the age of 98. President Biden's ordering the flags fly at half-staff through sunset on Thursday. Dole was a World War II hero and served as senator from Kansas for nearly 36 years. On the news, more on his storied career and his impact on everything from farm to foreign policy. That's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And Kentucky Derby winner Medina Spirit has died of an apparent heart attack. It happened after a workout at the Santa Anita racetrack in California. The horse failed drug testing after winning the Derby in May. Kentucky race officials are still considering whether to disqualify Medina Spirit for illegal steroid use. Kelly? Oh, sad you. end to a sad chapter. Christina, thank you very much. Thanks. Coming up, it's a tale of two tech stocks. What IBM and Snowflake can tell us about the sector and the stocks poised to outperform. Stay with us. 
Welcome back, everybody. We've been seeing some choppy behavior in tech stocks with new software names soaring while older companies lag. Two stocks help tell the story, Snowflake and IBM. John Fort joins me now with more on that, John. Yeah, they kind of switch switch around sometimes, Kelly, and it's one of those days. Uh, Snowflake and IBM both have market caps around $100 billion at the moment. Both are trying to tell stories grounded in enterprise software in the cloud, but investors are looking at them very differently. Snowflake's a growth name. In its earnings report last week, it delivered 110% revenue growth. Popped in a major way after that, up double digits. But it's negative for the month, still well above where it traded after that massive IPO last September. There. Okay, Okta's another name in a similar boat. Big earnings beat last week, but investors trying to decide how to value it. Then you got IBM, struggling with top-line growth for a long time as its Red Hat unit and some smaller software units thrive. But other legacy units inside IBM have been declining. Its turnaround story isn't quite baked yet. And elsewhere in tech, you could put Intel in a similar category. IBM and Intel, though, up nicely today. All of that, I think, is an interesting setup for a couple of enterprise software names reporting tonight. Coupa, MongoDB. Coupa's lost all of its pandemic gains. It's back along that trajectory where it was in early 2020. Uh, MongoDB, though, hasn't. That's amazing. And they're both high Ford PE stocks as well? They are. Yeah, uh, Coupa, uh, expense and cost management software, really cost management, which is interesting. You think people need that. I'm really going to be eager to see how their growth is doing. MongoDB more on the cloud database side. Very interesting. And Snowflake up 110% in revenue is just something else. Yeah. Wow. John, thank you very much, John Ford. Let's dig a little deeper into tech now. On the surface, this decline hasn't been too dramatic. The tech ETF, the XLK, is down 4% or so from its 52-week high, but there are some individual names that have been seeing a much steeper decline, like Meta, Facebook down 17% from its high, Snap dropping 43%, and Fiverr, a mid-cap, down 63% from its 52-week high. Is it time to give some of these underperformers a second chance? Jason Helfstein is here. He's managing director and head of internet research at Oppenheimer. All right, Jason, this is diff- you know, it's tricky territory right now. Are you going to pick up Fiverr down 63%? Yeah, look, that's a, a name where uh, cl- classic COVID beneficiary, right? They service um, freelance sellers to go find customers um, and, you know, the perfect job to kind of do if you're working from home. Um, at one point, that stock was trading at over 25 times forward sales. Now it's 12. So the question is, um, where, where's the bottom? Um, or another way to think about this is a company that has 4 million customers. And if you look at you know, who's a good representation of small businesses? Look at the the, the GoDaddy's, the Wix's, the Squarespace, right, Who, who's got their, their websites. There's something like 40 million uh, paying customers there. So they basically have a 10% penetration of the market. So right now, for example, that's a stock that we think should be bought on the weakness. So you actually see the best opportunity in Fiverr and in Roku right now. Is that right? Again, if you're putting, you know, again, they're mid cap, not large cap. We can talk large cap. But within our universe right now, um, yes, um, you know, we're looking at companies that when they were at highs, you had to really kind of price in the your most optimistic outlook. So for Roku, you had to start to give them credit for what they could do internationally. And unlike in the U.S., where they really did benefit by a first mover advantage and have a dominant position. And, you know, we should get an update this week as far as their uh, their fight they're having with Google about YouTube. Yeah. But um they may not be successful internationally, right? Like we don't know, but when the stock was at the highs, you needed to assume that to still be a bull on the stock. At this point, if they're just kind of a, a second or third player internationally, 
that's just fine. We think you can make money in the stock. That's a good explanation of how the price decline kind of changes what needs to go right for the stock to work. All right. So in large cap, you like Snap and Uber. But let me ask you uh, finally, before we go here about your mega cap pick, which is Meta or Facebook. You know, why is that? And, and speaking of catalysts, what are the positive catalysts for this name over the next, say, six to 12 months? Sure. So first of all, I think most people now realize the concerns about supply chain were not as bad as thought. And so that probably means the overall macro advertising environment will be, you know, probably in line or better than expected in the fourth quarter. I think there were a number of industry forecasts that came out today at a competitor conference and will be reported over the next 24 hours. Um, that'd be point number one. Point number two, all this focus on you know, uh, uh, targeting customers. Facebook still sits out, or Meta, got to used to saying that, still sits <laughs> on the best uh, best set of data and their advertisers know what to do with it. And so while other companies are building data sets, um, Facebook Meta still has the best first party data. And I guess lastly, I'd leave you with, you know, we're looking for them to spend about $11 billion next year on on kind of Meta and, and you know, all, you know, AR, VR, et cetera, if you, if you kind of don't penalize them for that investment, so in other words, don't give them credit, but don't penalize them, the stock is trading at about 11 times kind of forward EBITDA, which, you know, is kind of at the low end. And you've got, meanwhile, yeah. Google even adjusting for some of their underperforming assets more like it. 15 and a half. So you've got the stock at one of the widest valuation gaps versus uh, Alphabet. Mm -hmm. um, and we think that that, um, you know, um, Alphabet will go back to losing share once kind of the economy is fully reopened. Very interesting. So many different levers there. Jason, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Again, with Thank picks you. across midsize, large and mega cap tech, Jason Helfstein. Still ahead, advertisers have already had to deal with the sea change thanks to the digitization of everything. One firm is taking a page from the software companies and you'll recognize one of the folks at the helm, Brian Reynolds. We'll speak to the actor next here on The Exchange. Welcome back, everyone. Streaming and digitally targeted ads have forced companies to think outside the traditional advertising box. One company is working to streamline that process, marketing software platform Mountain. They're announcing Creative as a subscription today, meaning Mountain both creates TV ads and distributes them for clients. They recently acquired the advertising arm of Ryan Reynolds' Maximum Effort production company. And joining me now to talk more about this are Mark Douglas, the Mountain president and CEO, and Ryan Reynolds, their chief creative officer. Welcome to both of you. Ryan, are those red AirPods? We need to know like all the cool stuff you're into. <laughs> <laughs> I do have red AirPods. I don't. I, this is a bit more of an accident than anything. Uh, I couldn't find my normal ones, so yeah, these were these were a gift that I got on a film once. So. Ah, didn't know if it was nail polish or yeah. something to that no, effect. No, yeah. I'm afraid not. Nothing that cool. No. We appreciate you joining us today. Uh, tell me, I, I have to confess, I did not know about all of the work that you've done in advertising. To quickly summarize how that's brought you to partner with Mark Douglas. Uh, yeah, I, I have a, a company called Maximum Effort, uh, and we sort of, you know, were born of the Deadpool era where necessity was the mother invention. We love telling stories. We're uh, primarily creatives and, and storytellers. And, you know, merging with Mountain was sort of exactly 
you know, they, they've sort of facilitated exactly the kind of relationship and impact we want to have in, in this space. So it's been this incredible uh, marriage that we're really lucky to be a part of. Mark, explain the future of this technology to us. Creative as a service sounds awesome, but also like a big undertaking, maybe uh, an expensive one that could be hard to pull off. And tell me why you think TV is still king. What do you mean by that? Well, the right today, basically, creative and media have been completely separate. And so it's a daunting challenge for most advertisers, especially emerging advertisers, but also bigger ones to essentially go and find a media agency to distribute the ads, but also to find a creative agency. It's expensive. So we're bringing those two together. And part of the reason why is we think creative, the actual message, the commercial you deliver to the consumer should be entertaining. It should be exciting. And you should be able to refresh that regularly. So that's what we're doing with creative as a subscription. Um, how, Mark, has the pandemic changed advertising or maybe accelerated some of these changes that were coming? Well, obviously, a lot of people have been home watching a lot of television. But even before that, I mean, a lot of people refer to this as kind of the golden age of TV because there's so much great content out there. And so that's created a lot of consumers at home. And this gets paid for by companies who want to basically reach those consumers. And so it's been great seeing all of this viewership. And then that just creates this tremendous opportunity, especially in streaming, which is what we're focused on, to basically deliver a better ad experience for the consumer and also for the companies trying to reach those consumers. So it's been it's been absolutely fantastic. And Ryan, I'm reading here, I mean, other than you're going to stay on as the chief creative officer here, you're also, you've got Aviation Gin, Mint Mobile, Wrexham Football Club, a co-founder of Maximum Effort, the production company. I mean, that's a lot. You know, tell the CNBC audience where we should continue to sort of watch you put investment dollars to work. And what's been the most lucrative thing so far you've been involved with? Um, well, you know, the, the latter question I might say for another day, but, but you know, really, uh, Everything that we have right now is engineered toward Mountain. I mean, you know, Mountain, we feel, is inevitable. Um, you know, I, I honestly wouldn't normally be that bold, but when you look at the tech that Mark has built, and he's personally coded, by the way, which is no small feat, yeah. you know, you look at that, the trajectory, the trajectory of connected TV, you realize that there's going to be one company that emerges, like Google did with search, Facebook did with social, and I know that it's Mountain in this space, and, and, and it's super exciting. So everything right now is, is going towards that. Well, I'm still taking care of my other businesses, Mint Mobile and, and, uh, and Aviation Gin and certainly Wrexham. You know, those are, those, I'm on a sabbatical from actually shooting films right now, so I can focus on all of these things <laughs> in a more 9-to-5 context, which has been really uh, a huge uh, privilege and luxury for me to explore. So. Well, those are strong words of praise, and uh, we thank you both very much for joining us today. It's been fun. Mark Douglas is the president and CEO of Mountain. Ryan Reynolds is now the chief creative officer. Ryan, you worry about crypto and Web3 and all you Are we going to have a token, a Ryan Reynolds token anytime soon? Kelly, I worry about everything, pretty much. You can guarantee that. Uh, you can name a subject, and I'm worried about it. So, well, we'll 100%. send you some good podcasts. We'll get you caught up to speed. No, you're, uh, you know, we expect to see you doing so much more. Uh, it's very exciting times. Guys, thank you again both for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Appreciate it. Ryan Reynolds and Mark Douglas on The Exchange. Still ahead, stocks are in strong rally mode this afternoon. We're going to look at the big movers of the day and what spurred the recent uplift. Plus, the classic car boom goes public. We'll dig into that next. 
Quick check on the markets, everybody. All three major averages climbing today. Dow leading the way up more than 2%, up 776 so far at the high. The S&P up 1.5%. The Nasdaq lagging slightly, but still up more than 1%. The cruise lines leading the markets, while Moderna is the biggest laggard, shedding 16% today. Coming up, shares of classic car insurer Haggerty popping in their trading debut Friday. They're up again today. We'll speak with the CEO about that next. Welcome back. Collector car insurance company Haggerty started trading on the New York Stock Exchange on Friday after going public via SPAC. Shares are higher today and have climbed more than 50% so far. Joining me now from outside the NYSE is CEO McKeel Haggerty, along with CNBC's very own Robert Frank. Robert? Kelly, I am joined by McKeel Haggerty, the co-founder and CEO of Haggerty, as well as a $25 million car behind me. We're going to tell you why it's so valuable in a second. McKeel, congratulations on the listing, the share price today. A lot of people think that the classic car insurance business is a small segment, just a few wealthy collectors. How big is this market? How many cars do you insure now? What is the total addressable market over time? Uh, well, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's a big day, big day for Haggerty, big day for the car world. This is a bigger world, this uh, automotive enthusiast space, these uh, fun cars to drive. Uh, we've been pulling together some pretty amazing statistics about the total addressable market. It's about 43 million vehicles in North America alone that are registered and owned for the purpose of pleasure driving, fun driving, that kind of thing. Um, our average value of, say, $30,000, it's over $1.4 trillion worth of value. And that's a, that's a pretty interesting thing. But, you know, people who love cars, they really know, they have no boundaries when it comes to how much time and money they'll spend on them. And that's what really makes this different. It's not a regular car. It's not for getting from point A to B. Uh, so it's a cool, big market. Yeah, this is a really passionate audience. And beyond just insurance, how are you expanding to become, you know, you've got created kind of this flywheel within the classic car world. How are you expanding in what media or what other areas can you grow? Now, we started in insurance, and you know, we think we're pretty good at that and growing a lot. Uh, we, we started a, a membership subscription model about 15 years ago, and that includes a pretty heavy-duty uh, media presence. So we have a magazine that, with over 700,000 circulation, uh, YouTube uh, channel, 1.8 million subscribers. We started acquiring event companies uh, within the last couple of years, so we own Concours, Delegance around the country and a bunch of events and experiences. Uh, we've been building out these uh, clubhouse models. We call them Haggerty Garage and Social. So think kind of warehouse with a kind of Soho house, clubhouse feel for car people. Uh, so we're, we're kind of building out this ecosystem around the car world. And, and while we may start with insurance, it really starts and finishes with the love of the automobile. And when we talk 13, 14 years ago, we were worried that this classic car buyer was getting too old and they were going to age out. What are you seeing from new collectors and what's hot right now in the classic car world that these young collectors are buying? Well, there's some good news there. Um, this is the first year where over 50% of all of our new clients, new members are coming in, were born post-1965. So that means they're Gen that's Xers. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's considered young. Um, so, you know, Gen Xers and millennials, and, and contrary to popular belief, millennials do like cars. They just have to be able to afford them. So, you know, what we're seeing though is newer and newer cars coming in and are being driven, owned, bought, enjoyed as for collectible cars. So think 
80s and 90s cars. I think vintage uh, off-road vehicles. And you know, Broncos. Jeeps, Broncos. And all those oh yeah, cars. it's hot as could be. All right, Kelly. So Broncos are the new Ferraris, and this car behind me, by the way, is, is the car that won 1966 Le Mans. So it is a 25 million dollar car. So these cars are going way up in value every single year. Incredible, yep. Robert. Thanks for bringing that to us. Car insurance. It's not just progressive. Uh, that does it for the exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.